Hi, this is Ben Lowell of Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. This week we begin airing Dr. Newfeld's popular series, Celebrating Our Freedom in Christ, and a message entitled Christian Freedom. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. We are beginning a series that will cover 1 Corinthians chapter 8 to 11. This series is all about freedom, Christian freedom. Galatians 5.13 says, you are called to freedom, brothers. So let me restate that. The Christian calling is the calling to live and act like genuinely free human beings. When we act as bound human beings or enslaved human beings or men and women under the bondage of something, we have deserted our calling. It's our moral obligation to be free and not surrender our freedom to any slavery whatsoever outside of our slavery to Christ. But what is freedom? And I hope you see that is truly the question. That's what we hope to answer in this series. And I must warn you in advance, this is going to stretch some of us. At the outset, I need to say that some of you will find this series to be objectionable. You're going to find 1 Corinthians 10, 23, where Paul says, all things are lawful, and you're going to wonder what that means. I mean, how daring and how scary that statement sounds. What if people actually believed all things were lawful? What does all things entail? Now, of course, context is everything. You can never simply tear one sentence out of the Bible, out of its context, and say, everything is permissible to a Christian, and yet we have to come to terms with 1 Corinthians 10.23. But this series is also about some things which honest, faithful Christians actually disagree about. Now, this is a discussion about freedom, and a most fundamental and practical perspective is going to be given. So we're going to ask and try to answer some of the most daring kinds of questions. What does Christian freedom look like? Are there boundaries to our behavior, and where are those boundaries? Do we need to draw boundaries everywhere? Or are there really some areas where it's really okay to let individual consciences decide how they're going to act? How do we make decisions on disputed questions? Are there matters we might disagree about and learn to be comfortable with differences? So what is mandated, things around which we have no freedom at all, and what are the kinds of things that there is no genuine command given to Christians? But let's not get ahead of ourselves. I think it's a good idea for us to get a layout of the land. What's 1 Corinthians chapters 8 to 11 all about? Now, as many of you know, the, the church in the ancient Greek city of Corinth was perhaps the most troubled church we know of among all the early churches. Paul himself had established this church, and you can read about that in Acts chapter 18. At the outset, Paul's presence in that city brought a great deal of controversy, but, but Paul prevailed, remaining in that city and strengthening the church in that city for about a year and a half. We know both this church and the city quite well. This city reflected Greek culture. Now, later on, when Paul was ministering in the Asian city of Ephesus, word came to him about the problems in the church at Corinth. Those problems included a great deal of infighting in the church, and also accompanying those problems were Christian compromises with the pleasure-seeking values of the wider Greek and Roman cultures. And so, if you were to list the problems in that church, well, we can actually divide them into two categories. The first has to do with their deep disunity. 
Now, in that category of problems, you find them in deep disagreement over leadership, internal lawsuits, the Lord's Supper had degenerated into a drunken feast, and the use of spiritual gifts had resulted in chaos in the community. The second category of problems had to do with their compromises in a deeply promiscuous culture, and here we find problems like incest, and they had gotten comfortable with sexual immorality, marriages in that church were breaking up, members of the congregation were dining in pagan temples, the theology of the resurrection of the dead was misunderstood, and that theology was even being influenced by pagan belief systems. Now, the reason I mention this is because from my gut, and I've been a pastor for more than 30 years, but from my basic instinct, I'm not sure I'd be telling this church that everything was permissible or helping them concentrate on Christian freedom. Instead, my first knee-jerk reaction would be to lay down some kinds of standards of conduct or even to lay down the law. And Paul does set out standards of conduct and even principles of excommunication, and he does demand they submit to Christian teaching and to Christian morality. But Paul was also aware that there is another problem. You see, sometimes in our attempt to stop from falling into a pit on one side of the road, we actually fall into a pit on the other side of the road. See, it's possible for a church so filled with permissiveness to correct it by making a rule about everything. And then in the process, they become legalists and all Christian joy and liberty and freedom would be erased as they become Christian Pharisees. See, how many of you know how easy it is for a church to become so rule-bound that all smiles and the excitement of the Christian faith is replaced by drudgery and always meeting someone's expectations? I mean, perhaps you grew up in a church like that, and that's why you've left the Christian faith. Well, if that's you, it might be surprising to hear that Christ has come to set you free. See, this series will discuss that at length, but let's stop here and make application. See, I think that the two issues facing the church in Corinth are also the greatest issues facing the church today. The question of unnecessary divisions between believers. And the problem of simply adapting to the wider culture, while those problems plague us today. See, in a sense, reading Corinthians is like reading a commentary on the church in our culture today, struggling with how to be Christian in a secular society. But let's start at the beginning. In these four chapters, chapters 8 to 11, which discusses Christian freedom, let's get a sense of what the outline of those chapters actually look like. Chapters 8 to 10 as a whole seem to deal with but one theme, and everything else in those chapters keeps being applied back to that one theme. The question is this, should Christian people be given the freedom to eat in pagan temples? Now, lest you think that question is a relic of the past, let's consider. There are nations in the world today, India, China, many others, which are filled with temples of non-Christian religions which celebrate various gods and goddesses. See, all manner of Christians have struggled with how they should live in such a culture, and so I hope you see this question is extremely relevant. And then if you take the matter one step further, you might notice that the temples in ancient Corinth were simply an expression of the majority culture. 
See, many of the temples had fertility rituals, which, which led to a very permissive view of sexual practices. And to that, no matter where you live, all Christians do have questions about what parts of our culture are permissible for Christians to participate in and what parts we should avoid. So in chapter 11, remember we're studying chapters 8 to 11, and since chapters 8 to 10 deals with temples and idols and Christian participation, chapter 11 then deals with things like head coverings for women and the Lord's Supper. Now, that might seem like the theme has changed, but but really it hasn't. See, chapter 11 further extends the issue of freedom, calling us to consider the principles that we've learned in chapters 8 to 10 and extend those principles to other areas, and in this case, principles that deal with established practices in the local church. So as a way of introducing this series, let's begin by laying out five basic questions that Christians have regarding freedom. Here's question number one. Can I break God's commands and still be free? Now, to be clear, notice I've made a distinction between cultural commands and biblical commands. See, I remember years ago, I stopped wearing a tie when I was preaching, and some people actually gave me Bible verses about the matter. But notice, I know the difference between a command that comes directly out of the Bible and a command that has to do with cultural norms and expectations. Now, I'm not arguing that I should disregard cultural norms. I do, however, make a great distinction between what Scripture demands of me and what the expectation of others demand of me. Those are two very different matters. And so I'm simply asking the first questions about those commands that come from the Bible, from the revealed will of God. If I break God's commands, can I still be free? And the reason I ask it that way is because many of us have asked that question the other way around. They think if God demands that I obey, am I still free? Do you see the difference? Imagine for a minute that a skydiver at 10,000 feet announces to the rest of the group, I'm not using a parachute this time. I want no restraints, no boundaries. I want freedom. Well, he will have it, but for a very limited period of time because there is a law, the law of gravity, And no matter how much he proclaims the law of freedom, the law of freedom is about to have a collision with the law of gravity, and the law of gravity is going to win. Is there such a law of gravity for Christians? Yes, there is. Our world is confusing. Every place we turn, there are new rules and protocols. The daily news can be baffling and disturbing, and we can clearly see that there are people suffering from fear, not knowing who they can trust or or where they can find truth. Our world has never needed us to be clear on what is foundational and what is true. As a friend of Back to the Bible Canada, we know that you care about trustworthy, verse-by-verse Bible teaching. Together with you, anyone seeking to know and better understand the God of the Bible and the significance of a relationship with Jesus will find accessible, relevant, and trustworthy Bible teaching through a dynamic range of mediums and resources. To know more or to offer a gift to support this cause, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And don't forget to ask for your free CD copy of Dr. Neufeld's series, Bible teaching you can trust. In Proverbs 6, 
Solomon is warning his son not to have sexual relations with any woman but his wife, no matter how beautiful that woman might be. And then he tells his son why. Listen to Proverbs 6, 27 to 29. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So as he who goes into his neighbor's wife, none who touches her will go unpunished. So let's extend this principle. In Romans 6, Paul says, if you use your freedom to indulge the flesh, you're going to die. That's the law of gravity. If you disobey God, the freedom to disobey lasts only a short period of time. Paul adds to that in Romans 6 that we are slaves to the one we obey. In other words, we don't just sin. When we sin, we become slaves to sin and our freedom is taken away. Talk to the alcoholic, the drug abuser, the person trapped in pornography, the person given to fits of anger or to any sin, and you're going to find that it takes away your freedom. At first, we're free to engage in this behavior, but now we're no longer free to stop for the behavior or the sin or the flesh controls us and we have no choice but to obey the dictates of that sin. Freedom is gone. So let's be clear. All God's commands are intended to keep you free, free from enslaving lusts, free from servitude to money, free from broken relationships, free to know God, free to avoid the collision with death. Just so we're clear, God's commands are intended to give us freedom, not to take it away. See, the problem with legalism is that when you meet people enslaved to the law of others or cultural commands or the, or the rules of men enslaved to the expectations of societal norms, there you meet people whose joy is gone. But God's commands are to make you truly free. If you sin breaking God's commands, your freedom has been relinquished and you have now become a slave. See, that's the first question we deal with in this series. Can you sin against God's commands and still be free? Okay, here now is the second question. Is everything a command? See, the reason I put it that way is because for some, their entire world is made up of a series of do's and don'ts. The list of rules whereby they must live just keeps on growing and expanding. And as it does, the parts of their lives that are truly free just keep on shrinking as their personality and joy is eaten up by the expectations they must live by. Truly, they're not free. See, we've been talking about whether in our pursuit of freedom and obedience to the Lord, whether everything is a command or whether some things are a matter for the personal individual conscience. See, the answer, of course, is that not everything is a command. See, let me give you a shortened list in the past of the kind of things some well-meaning Christians have tried to make into commands. You can't go to a bowling alley. You may only have black cars. You can't bring an organ into the church, and then you have to have an organ in the church. You can't sing four-part harmony. You have to sing four-part harmony. I mean, the list goes on and on. You can't have a motorcycle. You can't play pool. You can't chew gum. You have to wear a tie. You have to pray standing up. Women can't wear makeup. Well, the list goes on and on. But these things are but the simple things, and we all laugh at them today. But today, well, things have gotten a little more complex. Can Christians have tattoos? Can women get breast implants? How about in vitro fertilization? How about body piercing? How about alcohol? Given the current poker craze, can Christians be involved in that? 
and someone says, wow, you're going to actually talk about that? And if you are, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. But isn't that interesting? Because some of the biggest quarrels between Christians have not been over the deity of Christ and the Trinity or how to get saved, but over matters about which there are no clear commands in the Scripture. So in pursuing what freedom means, we have asked, can I break God's commands and still be free? And secondly, is there a command about everything? Now, question number three, what do I do about those gray areas? Now, there are at least two wrong positions that I think Christians take. One wrong approach is that we make everything in life black and white, good or bad, right or wrong. For those people, even the talk about gray areas makes them nervous and angry. But an equally wrong approach is among those for whom everything is gray. In their world, nothing is black or white. Everything is a matter of personal conscience. So just so you know, we will reject both of these approaches, allowing the Bible to be our guide, helping us to navigate these kinds of questions. And that leads us to question number four. What do I do when Christians disagree about which areas are gray and which are black and white? And then question number five. Should I care about what other Christians think about me? See, in our day, when the entire trend is toward individualism, many of us almost think it a badge of honor that we don't care about what someone else says about us. Is that good? Is that bad? Well, I hope you see just how relevant 1 Corinthians chapters 8 to 11 will be as we study them. So let's get to our text. Back in chapter 7, Paul began that chapter with this statement. He said, now concerning matters about which you wrote, and then when we come to chapter 8, which is our section, he starts with this sentence, and it sounds very much like the one found in chapter 7. Now concerning food offered to idols. See, Paul is signaling that he is still answering specific questions that have come to him from the Corinthian church. Since they are a divided church, they have questions they need help on, and one of the areas that has heightened their division had to do with food offered up to idols. See, if you had gone to Corinth, you probably would have noticed the temples first. You would have seen temples to at least 19 different gods and goddesses, and that's not including all the buildings that held services for the mystery religions. But most impressive of all of the temples was the Temple of Epaphrodite. It housed, some think, 1,000 sacred temple prostitutes. Corinth had gods and goddesses for every single occasion. There was a, a god of war. There was a goddess of love, a god of travel, a goddess of justice, a different god for every room in your house, a different god for every disease you could have, a god for the kitchen, and a god for the bathroom. In fact, the whole city celebrated its various gods and goddesses, and they were extremely proud of their religious diversity and even encouraged you to sample the different religions in a way that you might sample restaurants. So let me explain the situation. Every day, worshipers would enter the various temples and make sacrifices to the gods and goddesses. Sometimes meat and sometimes other foods were sacrificed. The food would be divided into three parts. One part would be burned on an altar, 
a second would be kept to be eaten by the worshiper, and a third would be given to the priest. Now, the amount of meat given to a priest would have been so large that it would have to be sold in marketplaces. In fact, Dr. Anthony Thistleton, who did a major study on Corinth, says the best quality meat sold in the marketplace usually came through the temples through wholesale suppliers, and it would have been difficult to avoid using these sources. In fact, the best prices on meat came from the temples which had been offered to the gods. And some believers said, Since we became Christians, we know that all the gods of Corinth are nothing. They are no gods at all. There is only one God, and these so-called Corinthian gods, they're a joke. They can't speak. They can't act. They can't save. They can't do anything. So it means nothing if I buy this kind of sacrificed meat in the marketplace. But other Christians, especially those who had before they had come to know Christ, been deeply involved in and ensnared by Satan in temple worship with all its demonic activity and perverse sexuality, when they came to Christ, they put all idolatry behind them. And they had become appalled that some Christians would buy food in the temple. How can that be? And so the Christian community was divided about what to do about this. See, if I wanted to, I can think of very good arguments for both sides of the debate. Should Christians be allowed to go to the temples or to the marketplaces which were fed by the temples and buy there? See, I can think of arguments on both sides. And from this question, Paul will teach us what it means to be truly free and what it means to be truly Christian in the midst of these kinds of daily questions. So hang on. I think this is going to be a very enjoyable series, and it will stretch you. And it might teach you how to live as a Christian in a non-Christian world. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would open up our hearts to one another, to the Word of God, and help us to see what you have for us to learn in the world in which we live. In Jesus' name, amen. John, you know, here's the question I got to ask you. Should I limit my freedom for others or, or when should I limit my freedom? Yeah, that is so important because I don't think we can make a rule here about when and when not to outside of I should be looking to bless brother or sister. But we need to be careful that there's not this tyranny of the opinions of others that limits everything that we do and say. Because sometimes, you know, when we think about who's a weaker brother and who's a stronger brother, I mean, sometimes in our own mind, a weaker brother is the person that complains the most and the stronger brother is the person who's quiet. Well, if, if we only limit ourselves whenever someone complains, we obviously will never get anything done. And yet, I think we want to limit ourselves when others are being benefited spiritually by what we do. So, you know, some wisdom is required in all of this stuff. And uh, as we move forward, I hope that some of these things are going to become clearer. Thanks so much, John. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. We're so grateful for those who listen, view, read, and support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Your encouragement confirms that people are being impacted through the trustworthy teaching of the Bible. Just a couple of recent notes. I'm so thankful for teaching which emphasizes both the free offer of the gospel and the urgent need 
for godly living in response to the gospel. And I find your teaching is helping me grow in my faith. And for me, you're an essential service. Please keep on teaching the Bible. Thank you for joining us in ministry. This is why you matter. Your partnership ensures that instead of living in confusion, Canadians from all generations, coast to coast, can grow in faith, understand the gospel, and access trustworthy Bible teaching. And don't forget this month, we want to send you as our free gift, Dr. John's brand new series, Bible Teaching You Can Trust. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.